Welcome to Avant Bard, a podcast where two theater nerds explore the highest highs and the lowest lows of works inspired by that upstart crow himself, Ho William Shakespeare. My name is Megan Charlo, and I use she/her pronouns. And my name is Matthew James Marquez, and I use he/him pronouns. Now, you may have noticed that we didn't quote today's film in the beginning of the podcast. That is because our subject today, Ron, is the first foreign language adaptation we're covering on our podcast. We want to put out there that we are not experts on Japanese cinema or culture. We also understand that subtitles inherently change how a film is perceived in translation. So, we are viewing this film through that lens because... That's all we can do. So, Ron. Roughly translated as chaos, or turmoil, or confusion, or revolt, or rebellion. Let's just say Google Translate has a lot of definitions. But ultimately, you get the picture. So, Ron is a loose adaptation of William Shakespeare's King Lear. Ron was directed by Akira Kurosawa and released in 1985. Kurosawa is a legendary film director and is the most artistically influential director that we've covered thus far. He is a fundamental Japanese director, famous for works such as Rashomon, Seven Samurai, as well as other Shakespeare adaptations like Throne of Blood and The Bad Sleep Well. Kurosawa also connects this film to 10 Things I Hate About You because at the beginning of 10 Things I Hate About You, they play the song One Week, which says, like Kurosawa, I make mad films. Okay, I don't make films, but if I did, they'd have a samurai. Which he was famous for using. Ron was also edited and partly written by Kurosawa, the other writers being Hideo Oguni and Masato Ide. Ron was also the most expensive Japanese film up to the point of its release, with a budget of a whopping $11 million. Which, frankly, by today's standards, is chump change, and even with inflation, it would only amount to around $28 million. But it's clear by the film that every single dollar is on screen. He did not waste a single dollar. And Ron also won an Academy Award for Best Costuming, thanks to the work by Emmy Wada. And good for her. You will not hear me complain about any costumes in this. They are all immaculate. As for the connection to Shakespeare, Ron did not originally start off as an adaptation of King Lear. Kurosawa developed the idea for the film in the mid-1970s from the legends of the 16th century warlord Mori Motonari envisioning a film where Motonari's sons are the antagonists. Upon learning of the plot similarities to Shakespeare's play, he folded the idea into the film before production started. So we're taking legends from two different parts of the world, which is awesome. And now I think it is time to talk about William Shakespeare's King Lear. King Lear is one of Shakespeare's later plays and one of his most famous tragedies. 
performed around 1606, King Lear is about an aging king hoping to bequeath his kingdom amongst his three daughters, but mistakenly gauges his favor based on the praises that the daughters can heap onto him. When the youngest refuses, he banishes her unfairly, and that leads to his own demise. Without getting too much into spoilers for Ron and Lear. And it is one of Megan and I's favorite Shakespeare plays. We directed it together in college. We like this one. So just as a warning, you might hear us gush openly about this play, even more so than others. And if you want to see some of our reactions that we had while watching this film, those will be going up on social media. So make sure you keep an eye out. Kurosawa takes this play and incorporates it into a large, sweeping epic set in medieval Japan. And I think we should start talking about Ron. Hell yes, Marquez. Hell yes. Scene one. We are shown a vast landscape, which, again, is one of the things that Kurosawa is well known for. And I just want to point it out because Lear has a lot to do with land. And when you show it on a stage, you can't show the land. And this film shows you a lot of land, and it's impressive. And you want to own it. I want to own it. I mean, maybe you don't. Maggie, can one ever truly own the land? But yes, I agree. Kurosawa uses a lot of beautiful wide shots. The great Lord Ichimonji and his court are resting after hunting boars. Ichimonji's a very old man. He's our King Lear. He's a very gray-haired old man, and he's very tired. And much like Marquez, sometimes he falls asleep in the middle of a conversation. And everyone's like, oh, let's give him some space. And his son Saburo, who always wears blue, puts a little tree branch in the ground to give him shade. And I go, ah, that's Cordelia, because he's the nicest of the children. Which, uh, Lear really doesn't show us, honestly. We find out that Cordelia's the favorite, and we're not given any reason why, except that she's the youngest. Yeah, that's a big thing with this movie in comparison to King Lear, is Ron likes to showcase its character's personality through action, which I know sounds insulting to Shakespeare, but it kind of is insulting to Shakespeare. To be fair, though, Kurosawa only takes the parts of the play that he wants to use, so he's able to add much more to those parts. Also, there might be more in the Japanese legend it's based off that Lear doesn't have. So Ichimonji has a terrible vision and wakes up in a start. Wait, what was the vision? He was in the wilderness alone, where his shouts were never answered, and he was in a terrible chill. And obviously, nothing will come of this. No, nothing like that is ever going to happen in this movie. And it's very interesting because Shakespeare has plays that have prophecies in them and has moments where people see what's going to happen, but Lear isn't one of them. So that's an interesting point. 
we are then given more background on characters that Shakespeare doesn't give. We find out that Ichimonji has all of this land because from the time he was 17, he went through decades of war claiming land from all of his neighbors in bloody battles, which tells us a lot about Lear's personality that's only glimpsed at through his actions in Shakespeare's play. Yeah, in Shakespeare's play... Lear mentions that he is a man more sinned against than sinning, and there is no way that Ichimonji thinks this about himself. No, he obviously is like, I'm the worst sinner in the world, I'm going to hell. But I just want peace now. Like Lear, Ichimonji realizes that he is too old, and he wants to give his land to his children. But unlike Lear, he decides that all of the outlying lands and the best castle and the title and everything is all going to his eldest, which makes a lot of sense for medieval Japan. And his eldest, Taro, will be the new family head, but Ichimonji will still hold the title of Great Lord, which means he's still keeping his foot in the game. The other two children, Jiro and Saburo, who we met earlier, will get the second and third castles, and Ichimonji tells his sons that he is going to take time residing at all three castles during his retirement so that he can enjoy the rest of his life, which is something that Lear does. Yeah. And I would also like to mention at this point that Taro is dressed up in yellow and is our stand-in for Lear's eldest daughter, Goneril. And Jiro is dressed in red and stands in for the middle daughter, Regan. Even though Kurosawa does not have Ichimonji base his allocations of land on his son's love, we do still get a conversation very similar to that discussion in King Lear. But in this instance, it's brought up by the children. Taro asks Ichimonji to reconsider. He's not confident in taking over, and he essentially says... Every night and day I pray to the gods to let my father live a hundred years, even at the cost of taking years off my life. Which is very similar to Goneril's I love you more than words can wield the matter speech. And in connection to some other of Shakespeare's plays, it is a denial of inheritance, which is a very big deal in plays like Julius Caesar and Richard III, where the person is given some power, and they have to at first say, no, 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 I am not worthy. And then they have to be asked again, and then they say, I'll take it this time. So he's just doing his due diligence of denying the power at first, as well as being Goneril. We then get our first glimpse of Saburo as a sweet bitch, I guess. He's an asshole. He's kind of an ass. Like... He turns to Taro after he says that and says, I could never use such honeyed words. I'd be embarrassed. I think this is very interesting because Cordelia does have asides in King Lear where she mentions how she's not going to say anything and she's being very quiet before she is addressed. And Saburo here is very, very aggressive in his opinions, which I think is a nice change of pace from Cordelia. He's vocal, and it makes him a layered character. 
Yeah, he is not afraid to speak his mind, whereas Cordelia will just be adamant that Lear is wrong. As we see, Saburo is more combative. Jiro, on the other hand, gives Saburo the side eye. I mean, not really, but basically. Agrees with Taro and says he'd rather stay behind Ichimonji's shield, but he will spend the rest of Ichimonji's life protecting him with his brothers. So next... Ichimonji grabs an arrow to teach his sons a lesson and asks each son to break a single arrow. And they do it. Easy peasy. And then he asks his sons to take three arrows. Get it? There's three sons. And asks them to break those three arrows. I see the symbolism. And they are unable to break them. It is supposed to show strength through unity. And it's interesting because this arrow story is from the inspiration of the film in the first place, the legend surrounding Motonari, but it is also one of Aesop's fables. And so this is another thing that transcends multiple cultures. And Saburo goes, that's nice, Dad, but you're senile, watch this shit, and he breaks it across his knee. And Saburo's not buying this, I'm about to retire, I want peace, Lear, and he says to him, the world has no loyalty, and you should know that, because you yourself were a merciless killer, and you raised us on violence and chaos. You want protection now? Who are you? What is this three arrows bundle shtick that you're giving us? And this is our first hint into one of Ron's themes, which is of nihilism. There is nothing out there but human nature and chaos, and there is no order to the universe or anything. And to try to put order on the world is useless, because nature will write itself into its original state, which is chaos, or Ron. Which is also a theme of King Lear. King Lear is a very, very depressing nihilistic play in which a lot of characters question, is there anything out there? Is there a true order to the universe? Or are we just blindly traipsing about on this canvas we walk on? I don't know. It's sad. We'll get more into it later, but this is just our first inkling. Like in King Lear, Ichimonji is not happy with Saburo. Oh, no? No. He feels very disrespected, which, fair. He was disrespected. He was blatantly disrespected, but from a place that I understand the disrespect coming from. And as Cordelia is, Saburo is exiled. I want to take a minute and talk about one of the major changes to this work from King Lear that changes a lot of things, which is all of the daughters are sons, because there is a natural power dynamic between a father and his daughters, and that is different than a father and his sons. And I mean that in the primogenitor sense of early modern England and medieval Japan, 
very patrilineal. And when Lear yells at his daughters, it feels really awful because Cordelia is just refusing to say that she loves Lear as much as his other daughters. That's a very different way that she is banished. It is merely the fact that she refuses to praise him more than she loves him. So she is very innocent in that regard. Whereas Saburo, though he still goes too far, is disrespecting him and disrespects his wishes and is disrespecting his brothers. And when Lear yells at him, there is a difference than when he yells at Cordelia. It feels more right that he is yelling at Saburo, even though he's still wrong. You understand why each are acting the way that they are, and you can't really be mad at anyone for their choices. Or you can be mad at both of them for their choices, because just calm down, boys. And this will come up later as well when we get into Ichimunji's relationship with Taro and Jiro, because that relationship and Lear's relationship with Goneril and Regan are also very different. <laughs> but he's banished, and banished along with him is Tango who is our stand-in for Kent, a character that I love. Who is not very big in this movie compared to King Lear, but I think it's okay. Yeah, I agree. Uh, The other characters are given a lot more depth, so I'm fine with Kent not being as important. I mean, in all honesty, maybe Kent has a little bit more lines than he should in King Lear because his character is very clear in King Lear and he doesn't need lines in that play. Kent is a loyal, nice guy and that's really all that he is and he doesn't really have much in the way of round characterization. He's a very flat character. So I think Kurosawa made a right choice in making him less of a vital character. But he's still here and we still like him. Like in King Lear, Saburo is still unmarried, and while this is happening, Saburo's supposed to be paired off with the daughter of two lords who are in the court currently. We have Lord Fujimaki follow Saburo off and invite him to still be his son-in-law and live with him and marry his daughter, because... He likes the courage and character that was shown by Saburo, and that's very similar to France in Lear. Well, hold on a second. I mean, it's different because it's him talking for his daughter, and like... France is more taking pity on Cordelia rather than liking her actions. He is more just, well, I will still marry you. He does praise her. But I feel like it's very different when the father of a person is saying, I like your gumption, son. Come and marry my daughter. Rather than France, who goes, if you don't get married, you'll have nothing. Because this is mythological pre-Kingdom England, and you're a girl, so you'll have nothing if you don't marry me. Very different feelings. You're right. Man, Cordelia just... Doesn't have many options. Tongo, who's Kent, as we said, is also invited to go and he says, No, I have to return to Ichimonji in disguise and keep following him. 
And Saburo's like, good on you, man. Doesn't question it. No, which is strange. everyone's just like, nice idea. Bye. Go in disguise. Part of the reason is, I think it's because Kurosawa doesn't have direct addresses to the audience or soliloquies where characters talk to themselves. So if they need to make a, a plot point, they just have to say it to another character. Because Kent usually says, I will go in disguise and I will go after Lear. And he says it to himself, but in this place, just like, hey, I'm going to go in disguise. See ya. A lady is finally introduced. Another point of the daughters being changed to sons is we lose three important roles for women. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where we have to remember what it's truly based off of, and that King Lear was just folded in at the middle. It is unfortunate, but we will press on. Because at least we've got Kaede. Oh, oh, what a great character. She is Taro's wife. She's bad. She is bad. But good. I mean, she's not good. She's uh, intriguing, interesting. I like her. Compelling, terrible person. And she treats everyone that she crosses like shit. And that's our introduction to her. She is Taro's wife, and she is absolutely furious that she has to wait for Ichimonji's people to leave the castle so that she can enter. Oh my god, let the people get off the bus before you start walking on the bus. Uh, it's her castle now. <sighs> she has the right. We're also going to start talking about Kyoami, who is Ichimonji's fool, who has been in previous scenes, but hasn't really acted as much like Lear's fool. So now that Ichimonji has given up his lands to his sons, now Kyoami is going to really start laying it on like Lear's Fool does. One of the first great lines we get is Kyomi essentially saying, Since I tolerate how terrible you are to me, there's no greater fool than me. But you lost your castle, so I guess you are a fool like me. And this is the same exact type of language that Lear's Fool uses. Lear's Fool says that anyone who follows Lear now should wear a coxcomb because they're a fool. Yeah, a coxcomb being the fool's hat. Yes. And that Lear's given away all of his titles, but he can keep the title of fool because he was born with that one. Yo! Lear's fool is the best at roasting people. Yeah, that's a fool's job. And the relationship between Lear and his fool in the play is vital to it the fool being a member of the court that speaks truth to power there is a special allowance allowed to the fool being the lowest member of the court that they are able to speak bad about higher members of the court it's this very strange medieval practice that i think is amazing that we need to bring back to modern politics yes it is a good way to keep you in check. And we see in Lear that a lot of people want to punish the fool for his actions, but Lear allows him to say these bad things to him because ultimately Lear knows that they're true. It is at this point in our viewing of Ron that I happen to look up who plays 
Kyoami. And that is Peter. Peter, if you didn't know, is a famous gay entertainer in Japan. He gets his name from the way he dresses and acts like Peter Pan. And he also is a drag performer. So you know what that means, Megan? What? We found the queer content! Hit that party button! I was gay, and I was born this way! Anyway, I just wanted to point out that that actor is queer. It's vital. And Kyomi is a very androgynous character, which is a thing that Peter likes portraying. And that's awesome. I dig it. Every fool should be that way. Every character should be that way. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> Our queen, Kaede, starts making Taro see that since Ichimonji is keeping the insignia and title of Great Lord, Taro really got nothing except land, and he's just a shadow of what he was promised. And she starts working those little screws in his head to make him realize that he needs to turn against Ichimonji if he really wants to be the Great Lord. And Taro demands the banner for the Great Castle, or else it's not the Great Castle. We later see Kyoami make fun of Taro for being manipulated by Kayade. There's a whole scene of Kyoami calling Taro a branch in the wind because he will just sway this way and that depending on what he's told. Oh, he makes a killer song of it. A great time is had by all. Except for Taro's guard who goes, I'm not standing for that, and goes to stab Kyoami until he gets arrowed. And we're like, what happened? This arrow came out of nowhere until Kurosawa pans up to a window in the castle, and we see Ichimonji with a severe look on his face and a bow in his hand. Hell yeah, Lear character's not just being a tired old man. Oh no, this guy is deadly. He is living up to that merciless killer title. He, he's scary. I'm scared. But since Kyomi wasn't hurt, no harm, no foul. It's just a dead guard. It's just one dead guard that doesn't follow Ichimonji. So Ichimonji's guards and Kyoami start partying. And they're singing the branch song about Taro. They're drinking, they're laughing, and we can hear them throughout other scenes. This, I think, is really vital in Kurosawa's interpretation that shows us things that you typically don't get on stage. Goneril is furious that Lear's guards are partying and laughing and drunk and making a mockery of their home. And in this film, you hear that. You hear it all the way in the inner chambers of the castle. And yeah, it's annoying, especially if they're singing songs talking about how shitty Taro is. And so, in retaliation, what does Taro do? He invites Ichimonji to dinner. Bum, bum, bum. It doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay. I'll have a dinner. Sweet. But then when he gets there... What, Megan? What? It's just a room with no food, and it's just Taro and Kaede. 
and they expect Ichimunji to sit below them. And he is furious. And he's like, do you know who I am? And Kaede says, the honorable father of my husband. Ooh, ooh. This is practically directly from King Lear. I love it. It's not anyone in the family, but it's a servant who says that Lear is just my lady's father. It's so good. It's rough. It's one of my favorite insults that you can do, which is you are not insulting them. You are telling a fact, but it's just not as nice of a fact as it should be. Well, it's also just not their title. He is the great lord. He maintained that title when he gave up his land. The correct answer would be, you are the great, great lord Ichimonji. Please sit above me. Yes. Ugh. And then Taro tells Ichimonji that he has to give up his title and everything that he had kept before. Or else, how can Taro be the great lord if he's not actually the great lord? And this is honestly far more serious than what Goneril does to King Lear. Because in King Lear, he just has his people and she just says, don't stay here, you can't have your guards. I don't want you to bring your forces into my house. If you want me to protect you, I can protect you with my forces. Don't bring those guys that don't follow me into my house. And that's basically it. She wants to be respected and she wants these people who are partying on her dime to leave. Well, this is, um, much worse. And so Ichimonji says, fine, I'll leave. I don't have to listen to you. I'm the great Lord Ichimonji, and I have another son. And he makes his way to Jiro's house. Castle. It's not just a house. And now we get Kaede's backstory. Hell yes, hell yes. I'm so excited. This first castle that they're staying in now was her family's castle. And she left it to marry Taro. And then as soon as she left and they thought, cool, we've got peace now, Ichimonji came and slaughtered her whole family except her mother who committed suicide where she's currently sitting. She just says it. She just tells us like, we're sitting where my mother killed herself. And I drop everything and i understand why she's so angry oh hey honey just so you know that's where my mom died i understand why she hates him so much and why she's so serious about reclaiming this castle fully it's rightfully hers i do want to mention that this scene where she mentions that megan got really excited about it but it is so quiet and there's no movement no 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 theater no theater there's definitely inspiration in kurosawa's ron from no theater which is a type of japanese theater which is known for having small moments with little to no movement followed by intense action now we don't get that right here we do get very intense words though but i do believe all of kayade is no theater this is where the influence is focused on i don't know about you megan but she's seeming a little edmund to me hmm scheming plotting wanting more power hmm 
But whereas Edmund, his motivation is that he is a bastard and therefore he can't inherit things or be recognized, Kayade is a victim of the past and a woman in the court, which means she doesn't have any power besides that of her husband. So she has to exercise the power that she has, which is the power that she has over her husband. Very similar characters, but with very, very different methods. I just think that's super interesting. Also, Edmund is a really juicy character, and I appreciate that that juicy character is given to a woman in Ron. Yeah, at least we have that if we don't have the daughters. While Ichimonji's on his way to Jiro's castle, we get an insight into the dynamic of the two eldest brothers, which is that Jiro is kind of pissed off that he wasn't able to be chosen to be the next head of the house just because he's 12 months younger than Taro. Which also connects him to the character of Edmund, who mentions in his monologue that he is 12 months lag of a brother. And when Ichimonji arrives at Jiro's castle, the first thing that he wants to do is see Jiro's wife, Sue. She's praying. She's praying to Buddha. She's a very religious, soft-spoken, kind-seeming person. And Ichimonji is so torn apart by that fact. This entire conversation revolves around the fact that he wants her to hate him. He doesn't understand how she can be happy. And seeing her smile makes his heart break. Because he burned down her castle and killed her entire family. As the cicadas. That's the cicadas in Ron. I know. But he wants her to hate him. Because he thinks it would be so much easier to bear. Because forgiveness is not something he thinks he deserves. And honestly, he doesn't. Oh, he definitely doesn't deserve this forgiveness. There is just some supreme pain that you feel when you realize that somebody wants to be hated. And even if they deserve it, it's sad. It's the biggest form of guilt. And it makes it impossible for him to move on and try to do anything because she's already readily forgiven him. And Ichimonji yells at her for her beliefs. He tells her there is no divinity. The Buddha reached enlightenment and left this world long ago. He's not here to help you. The only thing in this world is violence. (laughs) And she just smiles and lets him go on. Chilling. A very chilling scene. (laughs) And in that terrible mood, Ichimonji goes to see Jiro, who says, Hey, I got a letter from Taro, you know the new head of the family, and he says, I can't let you bring your guards here. It's against the rules, so you've got to go to him and apologize. If you were alone, I would welcome you in gladly. And Ichimonji is pissed because the great lord doesn't go anywhere alone. And Ichimonji tells him that only birds and beasts live in solitude. And then we get, as we have been for a little bit in this film... Some pitch-perfect cicadas buzzing in the distance. Which are happening right now, and 
they will likely be scrubbed out of the audio as much as possible, but they're happening. I love the inclusion of cicadas here, because in Japan, cicadas are a symbol of summer coming, and they are a symbol of summer leaving. That just means that things change. The seasons change, and good things can't last forever, which is a huge theme in Lear and Ron. So Ichimonji leaves, just like Lear leaves Regan. And all Marquez can think about is how cool big gates are. Listen, there are some big gates outside of Jiro's castle. And the way they get opened and let one person out is just such a stunning shot that I was like, what emotions are happening right now? I, I'm sorry, there's just a, a big gate. <laughs> I do actually have a more serious point here, though, besides Big Gates. And it's that I want to get back to how Ichimonji yells at his sons and how Lear yells at his daughters. Ichimonji just is angry at the disrespect that his children are giving him. But Lear devolves continuously as he is rejected from his daughter's household. So he curses their fertility, and he calls them shallow, fashion-obsessed monsters, which is just a gross characterization of women. He says, don't let teardrops, which are women's weapons, stain my cheeks. He's a terrible misogynist. Yes. Which Ichimonji, though a merciless killer... Doesn't really seem to be. No. But also, he has sons. Yes. So we don't know what he'd say. Though, to be fair, he's not saying much to his sons except, why are you doing this to me? I deserve better. And he doesn't yell at Kaede or Sue as women, really. No, he yells at Kaede for how she treats him. And he yells at Sue for how she treats him, because he wants her to treat him worse. Yeah, but he never devolves into... He never insults them. No. Earlier we see him angry that Kaede is mistreating his concubines when she's trying to enter the first castle for the first time, and he's mad that the concubines are bowing to her. But then he's reminded that that's what they have to do now, because she's the head lady of the family, and he's like, Yeah, shit, you're right. That was one of my orders. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a very different dynamic. So, Ichimonji runs off. And he doesn't want to go apologize to Taro. That's not what the great lord should do. So, his soldiers, his guards, tell him, well, we'll go to the third castle. And Ichimonji, we see as a very anxious, regretful character throughout this film. And he says... We can't go to the third castle because I exiled their lord. How are they going to see me? How are they going to treat me? Why would they let me in? Even though he's the great lord, he's been turned away twice. And this would now be the castle that he thinks has the greatest reason to turn him away. And he sees that and he isn't mad at them for that desire because he thinks that's what he deserves. And little does he know... Taro's already sent someone to take possession of the third castle. And all of the inhabitants say, cool, we're gonna leave and go find Saburo. 
So little does Ichimonji know that they probably would have accepted him. They love Saburo, but they were keeping the castle going. But then we get Tatango's great disguise. And what is it, Megan? Okay, I said that I didn't have any problems with costumes, and I realized now that that was a lie, because Tango says he's going to wear a disguise to go meet up with Ichimonji again to follow him, but he doesn't wear a disguise. And he walks up, and everyone's like, Tango, Tango. hey! It's Tango! And he's like, yep, it's me, Tango, and I go, What what was the point? I don't get it. Why even have the line about the disguise? Maybe it was the disguise in order to, like, travel travel through the lands of the others yeah i think that might be it but then he should have been taking off something i'm not gonna blame this on the costumer i'm gonna blame this on kurosawa for writing i will say that it is probably him traveling through the lands not dressed up like a lord and that's why he wears a disguise but that's not made clear so tango gives us the news that not only has taro sent Ichimonji out and kept him from staying at Jiro's castle as well. But he's turned all of the peasants in this land against Ichimonji. And if they give him food or shelter, they'll be punished. Which again, far worse than the girls do to Lear. They don't turn anyone else against Lear. No, they just let him go off into the wilderness alone. Like if he found some peasants, they'd probably help him. I mean, to be fair... They do gouge out Gloucester's eyes for helping him later on. But he's not a peasant. So Tango says, Saburo's out there. You could just go meet up with Saburo and be fine. But Ichimonji, again, guilty, guilty old man, says no. He can't face him after the way that he treated him. And he's just a sad old man. He looks like he's gonna cry, and if he cries, I'm gonna cry. And Tango also brought food for the starving members of Ichimonji's entourage. But Ikoma is the worst advice giver of all time, and tells Ichimonji that they cannot accept Tango's food. Why not? I think it was like a samurai, like, masculinity thing. You've got nothing. You're gonna starve to death. (sighs) And then that terrible advice giver is also like, well, Saburo's new dad, Fujimaki, is just siding with Saburo so that he can re-seize Ichimonji's land. Which is also untrue. Yeah. I mean, if he could, cool for him, but that's not his goal. Since they are starving, Ichimonji decides to try the third castle. There is no other choice. He can't go to Saburo because he starts crying when he thinks of him. So all he can do is hope that Saburo's men won't turn him away. And he gets there, and it's practically empty. And then outside, we see a bunch of forces lining up because Taro and Jiro are starting a war, which is not in King Lear. It might be in the Japanese legend that this is based on. I don't know. It's incredible. They have set a trap for Ichimonji and his men, and they just slaughter them. It is brutal, and it is beautiful. 
anyone who knows anything about Kurosawa knows that he knows how to film fighting. He knows how to film war. He knows how to film violence. And he's given us this easy visual cue of red, yellow, and white to know who's on whose side and who's part of whose forces. So without any words, it's very easy to follow the battle and see, one, that Ichimonji's people are being completely slaughtered, and that there's this tension that's underlying Jiro and Taro's troops where you kind of are waiting for them to turn on each other at any second. And then he removes most of the color from the scene, so all you can see is the selective red of blood. And he also removes most of the sound from the scene, except for the soundtrack. So really, all you hear is the music and a few select sounds. Ichimonji goes to fight back these attackers, and his sword breaks on the first swing, which isn't necessarily a common symbolic thing, because swords at that time were made to fairly easily snap. But it is very symbolic for Ichimonji, because it is... A hopeless fight at this point, and even his weapons are turning against him. This is his storm, Megan. There's not a storm in this play. There's a war. It's sad, and all the soldiers die, and then all the concubines kill themselves, and that's really sad, because they're just innocents. That just happened to be on Ichimonji's side. Yeah, I'm kind of happy that they killed themselves. I mean, it's much better for them to kill themselves than what might have happened to them otherwise. And that's all we'll say on that. (laughs) And this is where we truly see chaos. Ron. Confusion. Rebellion. All of those definitions. Out of nowhere. As Ichimonji is devastated by all of the death surrounding him of everyone he's been able to rely on, we see Taro get shot in the back. Arrowed! It is so sudden. My first instinct, I was like, did Jiro do that? Did the tension break and Jiro did that? And then the camera's practically looking around saying, but who could have done it? Was it Jiro? Was it Jiro's men? Was it Ichimonji? Okay, it wasn't Ichimonji. Who was it? And then we cut to Ichimonji sitting there stunned in his castle. And arrows are just flying across him in a very much this is fine moment. And I made a very hyperbolic statement here. I'm just going to read it. The shot of Ichimonji with arrows going behind him just sitting there is fucking better than anything Shakespeare ever wrote. Big mood. I mean, it's kind of hard to write that in a play, especially when Shakespeare very rarely even gives stage directions. Yeah, this is a very much a directorial choice, and it is a great one. You can tell that he's at the end. The fact that these arrows aren't affecting him at all. He's not scared. He's not willing to fight back anymore. He has given up. He is broken. He can't even commit seppuku because his sword broke. And I just think that The universe isn't letting him die. If it was, there are hundreds of arrows. One would have hit him. The castle is on fire. The fact that he's surrounded in fire and arrows and he's living, fate is not done with this man. No, he needs to suffer a little bit more. (laughs) But, understandably, the forces against him think it's done. I assume that they assume that he will be consumed 
by this fire and has probably been shot a bunch of times by arrows. So they start to back off and just watch it burn. And then Ichimonji walks out, pale as a ghost, slowly shuffling out of the castle. And they just kind of let him go. He literally looks like a ghost. If I was them, I would think he was a ghost. They part like the Red Sea. I want to take a minute to talk about a few of the visuals that are showcased in this war scene. The castle that Ichimunji is in is a real building that Kurosawa had built for this film. It's a full castle. No miniatures were used for this film. There are over 1,500 extras that were used. Everything is real. The arrows are real. The fire is real. Well, it's not real real. They didn't set fire to the actual castle and let it burn. But they couldn't reset. So the actor who plays Ichimonji had to walk out of that castle in one take. I love one take shots. They are so visceral. Also, we have guns in this scene. We have guns later on in the movie, but this is the first time that we're shown them. Guns are a big deal for Kurosawa because he made samurai films, and guns were a new piece of technology that represents the shift in the world. And that's a very big theme in Ron, and that's a very big theme in King Lear. The younger generation of Goneril, Regan, Cordelia, Edmund, and Edward are taking over for the older generation, and the same is true here. I'd also like to take some time to talk about the clouds in the film. Kurosawa intercuts a lot of scenes with shots of clouds in the sky, along with ominous tracks from the soundtrack, and it's kind of terrifying. I believe it's just supposed to represent just the futility of existence. You exist in this world, and there is a vast openness out there that's empty and formless and we see that when he leaves especially here we see a shot of the sky and we're just left with Ichimonji alone and we see the wind pick up which though we don't have a full-on storm scene because we have the war it is very reminiscent of Lear's storm where madness truly takes him and we see him acting the most out of character he's ever been. He is not interacting with anyone. He's picking flowers thoughtlessly. Which we can also connect to Ophelia from Hamlet, who also does a similar thing. It's a very powerful image. You pick up flowers when you're young. That's just a thing that you do that's associated with youth and a good symbol for when you see someone who's lost everything is that they revert back to that younger self where you're just picking flowers alone in the field. So now it's really sad. Yes. And Kiwami and Tango thankfully find him and they know that he needs shelter. He's an old man. He has just been through a war again. He was ambushed by his sons. And he needs somewhere to be safe and sleep and maybe recover. So instead of finding a random cave, 
like they do in King Lear, a small cabin is found and they go in and say, basically, a peasant, I know you're not supposed to, but please, he's just an old man. He's just an old guy. He's harmless now. He he needs sleep and food and he's going to die, please. <laughs> and it turns out that this isn't just some random peasant. It's Lady Sue's brother, Surumaru, who was blinded by Ichimonji years and years ago. He had his eyes gouged out, which is a Lear thing. Yeah. I mean, this character seems to combine both Gloucester from King Lear, who doesn't really have another XB in this story, and poor Tom or Edgar, Gloucester's son. It seems that they are combined into one role here. But they've changed it from Regan and Cornwall gouging out his eyes and making us see once again how bad the children are, and instead laid it on that Ichimonji or Lear was a merciless killer who hurt a lot of people. And it kind of continues this thought of, this is all terrible what's happening to him, but isn't it deserved for the balance of the world? Yeah, it's his fault. But you sympathize with him, so it's really hard. Surumaru plays a very eerie-ass flute solo to comfort Ichimonji. I would not be comforted by this flute solo. I'd be like, cool, I will really die now. <laughs> Thank you. On the other side of the land, Jiro shows up to the first castle in Taro's armor. What a power play. And waltzes right up to Kaede and gives her Taro's helmet. And they talk about what's been happening and how Ichimonji went mad and how there was a fight. And they have this great back and forth where they're calling each other out because they both want Ichimonji gone. And Kayade makes it clear that she knows that Jiro probably was responsible for Taro's death. And then Kayade goes full no theater on us. She gives the helmet back to Jiro and says, fine, you keep the armor. Let's talk, basically. And it's a very quiet scene. She enters in complete silence. And it's a very long, slow shot. And as they speak, she pulls a knife on him very suddenly and has it against his throat. Uh, I mean, I'm about it. It's amazing. And then she goes in a different direction and is like, I don't care what happened to anyone. I just want to stay in this castle because this is my home. And then she says that she will keep Jiro's secret that he killed Taro if she can stay here. And then she sucks the blood from her knife off of his neck and they make out and more. But we don't see anything more than that. Listen, I like me a bloody make out. In our opinion, every production of King Lear should have at least one bloody makeout. We luckily aren't shown the sex, because thank you, we don't need to see it. But we know it happened. Oh, they fucked. Well, considering the next shot we see of them, she's like, don't call me sister-in-law. After what we did, I could be your wife. And they it's like, fucked. Oh, he's married to a sweet, nice lady. 
And then she says, oh, by the way, that sweet, nice lady has to be killed or else I'm never going to fuck you again. Because no woman who has felt your caresses can stay alive. She is absolutely Edmund. Oh, yes. Edmund does this explicitly, seducing both Goneril and Regan. It is slightly different because Edmund is not married to Goneril at the start, but Edmund does get with both of them and make them hate each other. And in this instance, instead, it's make him kill Sue. We go back to the wilderness and we see Ikoma and Ogura, who, you know, we don't like because they're two flip-floppy lords who betrayed Ichimonji and then betrayed Taro and... Then Jiro said, no, I'm not going to have you in my court because I just saw you betray two people already. So they go to find Ichimonji. They go, oh God, he's a ghost with very pale legs. And they run away. And Tango says, nah, uh, uh, and murders them. Well, he murders Ikoma. <laughs> I'm sorry. Then Tango is given the confirmation that Jiro killed Taro, and Jiro would have killed Ichimonji, but he felt bad for the fact that his father had gone completely mad. So he let him live. A small mercy. I don't feel bad that he feels bad. And once again, Saburo is just named casually, and Ichimonji loses it. He books it. (laughs) He runs like someone said, there's a tiger behind you. And Tango takes that as a cue to... Go and fetch Saburo himself. Maybe if I can't bring Ichimonji to Saburo, I can bring Saburo to Ichimonji. A good plan. Definitely more likely than the first. Our terrible Queen Kaede wants not only to kill Sue, but she wants her salted head brought back to her so that it can last longer and she can enjoy it longer. Fuck. She makes this request of Kuragane, who is another lord, captain of the guard, probably. And he's a little uncomfortable. What? Why? It's just a woman's head salted. Also, you know, I think that he's probably one of Jiro's men. So it's his lady's head salted. Yeah. You can tell that not everyone is a big fan of this Edmund-like character. I don't know what you're talking about, Megan. All she wants is her lover's wife's head salted and brought before her. Who hasn't wanted that? The next moment that we want to discuss is one of the biggest changes between the story of William Shakespeare's King Lear and Kurosawa's Ron. It revolves around Kyoami the Fool. As Ichimonji sleeps fitfully in this cabin... Kiwami questions why he's staying with this old man who can't help himself, can't help anyone, and points out that if the rock you're sitting on starts to roll, you have to jump off it or else it's going to squish you underneath it. Kiwami grabs a bag and begins to walk out of the door when Ichimonji cries out in his sleep. And it stops Kiwami in his tracks. And he turns back around and puts the blanket over Ichimonji and curls up next to him. So I legitimately cried during this scene because, oof, 
again, my favorite character in King Lear is the fool. And throughout this film, we've seen Ichimonji acknowledge his mistakes, and we've seen him protect Kyoami from Taro's warriors, and we've seen Kyoami stick with Ichimonji through everything. And the choice that Kurosawa makes to have him stay with Ichimonji is immense to me. In King Lear, the fool disappears around this point of the story. We see Lear having a bout of madness, and everyone starts to leave Lear alone, and the fool says, and I will go to bed at noon, and walks off never to be seen again. And he might be referenced later in the play, as Lear says, my poor fool is hanged, but that's at the end of the play, and we just don't know if that's in reference to the actual character, the fool, or Cordelia, who is the fool. Spoilers, Cordelia dies, but we just don't know if that's what actually was intended by that line. So for all intents and purposes, the fool is no longer in the play. But Kiyomi makes the decision to stay behind because how can you abandon this sad old man when he's at his absolute lowest? He's been bad before, but now he's losing all sense of self. And I think that this shows Kiyomi has an immense amount of empathy, which I don't think that this movie thinks is an inherent part of humanity. This is, feels like a very nihilistic movie, and Lear is a nihilistic play, but I think that this is just such a very important showcase. Maybe that there is good in this world, and it's just based on our actions, and maybe it isn't foolish to stick around with these people because they need us. I've always had a problem with the fool leaving Lear because although the relationship isn't as developed as we see it in Ron, we do see that they have this back and forth rapport and the fool is one of the only people that we see ever make King Lear smile. And they speak openly with each other without the airs of being a king or having deference to a lord or a lady. It's just two people talking. And any time that Lear brings up his status to the fool, the fool undercuts it. I think one of the issues is in King Lear, Lear's true realization of how bad he's been occurs when he's alone. It is a soliloquy on the stage of him praying. The audience gets that. The audience gets to see him have this realization, and his fool doesn't. And I think that that gives the fool a little bit more of an excuse to be able to leave. Because if the fool had seen that and then left, I would never forgive the fool. Yeah. While in Ron, Kiwami has watched all of the regret that Ichimonji is going through. And all of the pain that he's facing for his past actions. And a lot of it that's self-enforced. I just love the idea that your brain knows that an action is not logical. Like, as he mentions before, if the ground is rolling from under you, 
you should get out of the way or else you'll certainly be squashed. And maybe there is a power there in sticking around in defiance to the natural order of things. Well, it's like at the beginning when speaking about Saburo, Ichimonji says, if flesh is rotten, even if it is your own flesh, you cut it off. Yet we know, most likely, if he hadn't cut off that flesh of Saburo, none of this would have happened. So even if the flesh seemed rotten, in his view, he probably should have toughed it out. Well, I mean, he did have rotten flesh, though. It was just not the flesh he thought. <sighs> so we go back to the first castle, and Kuragane has an amazing scene. As a small character, it's always great to have amazing scenes. And he brings a head to Kaede. And it turns out that it is just a statue of a fox's head. And he goes off on this huge exclamation of, What? Lady Sue was a fox? In disguise? God, I love this bit. That guy should just go on the road, like, doing a tour of his uh, Sue was a fox bit. Because it's so funny, like... I knew of King Pansu, and he was seduced by a fox, wink wink, who made him kill people, wink wink. They usually disguise themselves as women, wink wink. Maybe a fox has settled around here like this room right here, huh, Jiro, wink wink? Kate is not really happy about being called a uh, fox. What are you talking about? He never, he never says anything. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so she uh, gives down that ultimatum for real. And she's like, bitch, I'm out. Give me her head or no more sex. I said it before. It's true now. I'm leaving. I'm not coming to your bed tonight. Bye-bye. Changing gears again. Well, this movie is starting to quicken and cut in between a lot of things. So Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of jumping because that's what happens because that's interesting. It's Ron. Kiwami has these brilliant moments that make me so happy that Kiwami stayed because we get this very Lear's Fool-like tale of a bird who raises snake's eggs as its own and then the snakes grow up and leave the egg and eat the bird. And it's like, hey, like your kids, you know? Lear's Fool has a lot of these lines that appear earlier in the play about, like, why does a snail have a home? And the answer is, so he doesn't give it away to his children and leave himself with no home for his horns on his head. But again, we have a difference in that where Lear's Fool is like, wow, Lear, you're dumb. You did a dumb. And Kiwami, who is even better than Lear's Fool in, like, personality and kindness, is like, hey... Your kids were snakes, and you tried raising them. But let's be real, it's nicer than Ichimonji deserves. Oh, yeah. Kiwami is kind of heading towards Sue, and I love that Kiwami is so empathetic and caring, but it's that thing that happens where when someone dies and then everyone forgets all the bad things they did. Yeah. And we're definitely getting towards that with Ichimonji as he gets closer to death. And I think if he was of more sound mind, he'd probably hate it. Yeah, but he's not of sound mind. In fact, he doesn't even recognize Kiwami. That's rough, buddy. It is the most rough thing you can do in any media, I think. 
it's something that a lot of people experience in their lives. And it's always painful. We see all of the bravado and all of the strength that Ichimonji had crumble away, and he's terrified. He's afraid. He thinks that Kiwami has the power to harm him. And he begs for mercy, basically. He's nothing. He's no longer a warlord. He calls himself a worm. It's very sad. But also, he's not a great guy. It's the dualities of humanity and really the human condition where you're like, you're meant to empathize with people. And people have layers. And sometimes bad things can happen to terrible people and it still sucks. Listen, at least he's sad about it. Listen, I would not feel bad about it if bad things happened to him and he was adamant about how right he is. Right, he's an evolving character. He is living and breathing and growing. And Kurosawa has written him beautifully, and we're even just reading a translation, so I'm sure there's bits that we're not even getting. So Tango returns with Saburo and goes to the first castle to ask Jiro for Ichimonji back. And Saburo says, I don't want to fight. I don't care what's going on with this. Let me just take our old man and I will leave with him peacefully. Like, just let's just have a little trade where I just get him off your back and you never see us again. And Jiro won't take it. No. He doesn't the, trust him. He's the great lord now. And he's been raised by his dad. And he turned on his own brother to the point of killing him. And now he assumes that his younger brother will do the same to him. Yeah. Even though Saburo's a good guy. He'd never do that. No. He's a great guy. We love him. We love that guy. He put shade over his tired old man. Kaede, of course, sees this as an opportunity. And says, hey, Saburo's gonna find Ichimonji. We can't find him. We should just send assassins to follow him and then kill them. Classic move. Smart tactician. Terrible person. We have a moment that is really reminiscent of a different scene in King Lear, but it's flipped on its head. So in this scene, Ichimonji is continuously bemoaning his state. You know, he has nothing... He feels all of the weight of the world on him, and Kiwami jokes to him, if you really feel so bad, just jump off this cliff. And he does. I was like, oh, jumping off a cliff. That's like the prank that gets pulled on Gloucester. And it's like, jump off a cliff, and there's no cliff. And he's like, here's the cliff, but Gloucester's blind. And he just jumps off of nothing. And just kind of falls forward. Instead, here, it's Ichimonji, or Lear, who then just jumps off a cliff survives it this is a fantastical moment nature's not going to allow him to take an easy way out that's why he couldn't commit seppuku in the war scene his sword broke nature doesn't want him he cannot leave this story right now he doesn't deserve this easy way out he has to suffer or at least that's how i read it he can't just jump off a cliff. And he does continue to suffer because he looks up and he sees Sue and Sudamaru at the top of the cliff. Whether they're really there or not, it's not obvious if it's a vision of his. Because they don't say anything. Yeah. So it could just be that he's imagining them and he immediately thinks, I did it. I jumped off a cliff. I am now in hell. It's just so strange because it is so fantastical. This is a grounded film for the most part. And... 
the fact that he just survives is such a strong choice, which we applaud on our show here. We love strong choices. And that's a very strong choice to show that. And he just jumps up and sprints away. Like nothing happened. Like nothing happened at all. And Kyomi can't keep up. Kyomi's young. And has to find a way down this cliff. Because Kyomi knows if they jump, they're not gonna live. <laughs> yeah. And then we do cut to Sue and Surumaru, who are about to leave. They're going to run away. They're going to escape death and live together and be fine. But first they have to say prayers at their old castle and say goodbye to their families. And Surumaru suddenly realizes that he forgot his flute. And Sue goes, it's fine. I'll go get it for you. I'll go return to your cabin right outside of the war zones. She's dead. Yeah. That is the equivalent of being in a horror movie and saying, I'll be right back. You're not gonna be right back. I think it is also important to note that she gives Surumaru a scroll of the Buddha. Because he says, please, I don't want to be left alone again. And it's so heartbreaking. And she gives him the Buddha to keep him company. Which, as Ichimonji said earlier in the film, Buddha's gone. He reached enlightenment and left. And we didn't cover it at the time, but I'm bringing it up because it makes more sense in context here. Suomaru mentioned to Ichimonji that he wished he could be more like Sue and forgive Ichimonji for his actions, but Suomaru's lived in hate all this time. And thinking of the Buddha and praying doesn't work for him. Yeah. Surumaru doesn't have that comfort that Sue has. So it's a completely empty gesture that means the world to her and is just a piece of paper to him. This is a fun movie. I love it. It's fun. Saburo is going down the lane, finds Kiyomi. Kiyomi's just like, Ichimoji's missing. I can't help you, man. I don't know where he is. He literally jumped off a cliff and then just sprinted away. I could not catch up and now he's gone. I would like to state that during all of this, a bunch of war stuff is going on, but that's more background for these important emotional beats. Yeah. Jiro is determined to kill Saburo, kill Ichimonji. Fujimaki and Ayabe, the two lords whose daughter Saburo might have married, are both lining up to strike Jiro's men. So there is, once again, a front of oncoming battle that hasn't hit yet just lingering and adding tension to all of these scenes as we wait for the pin to finally drop but first saburo and kyoami who's now on saburo's horse are able to find ichimonji oh it's pretty fast thankfully yes and of course like we have in king lear we just have a very sad tender reunion scene We have a mix of Ichimonji not fully recognizing people necessarily, but it's mainly due to the fact that he doesn't think it's possible. And and Lear's at the similar point in the play. As he mentions, my eyes might deceive me, but I believe this to be my daughter Cordelia. And Ichimonji says, years ago I had three sons. Are you Saburo? It's this disbelief that's... Mostly due to the fact that seeing their child again, their favorite child, 
is too much good for them after all they've been through that they know that they don't deserve that happiness. If it's anything, it has to be a trick or they're dead and they're in heaven. It can't be real on the material world. And both Saburo and Cordelia instantly forgive their fathers. And it's very sweet. Everybody's crying. Ichimonji's crying and Saburo's crying. I'm crying. This always hits me so hard because you know what's coming. (laughs) And once again, it's a very realistic moment that you could understand and you could see happening in reality. It's not too far flung. And it is at that moment that the pin does finally drop and Jiro's men begin the attack on Saburo's men. And they fight, and then it turns out that there was some trickery going on on Saburo's men's side, and it looks like Saburo is winning, and they're excited about this. It's great. We got it. Maybe this will turn out differently than King Lear, Megan. But I know it can't be, and that's the pain. Everything's going well for a moment, and Saburo and Ichimonji are sharing a horse and Ichimonji's just like, wow, son, I can't wait to stay up late and have long talks with you and reminisce about Arrowed! And then Saburo gets shot. Just all of a sudden. And he is instantly dead. Oh, he's dead. And I like this a lot more than Cordelia's death in King Lear. Partially due to the fact that, you know, it's a film... And you can just have someone suddenly shoot someone and then they're suddenly dead. Yes. While it, it is very shocking. Yes. While based on the setting and just how King Lear is, it had to be Cordelia was killed off stage and Lear tragically carries her body on stage while wailing. The thing is, Cordelia's death, the stakes of it aren't readily felt. The urgency of them isn't felt because we know that she's going to be hanged and that they can stop it. But everything's up in the air about, like, do we have time to stop it? Are they going to stop it? And she's going to get hanged, but there's a chance we might stop it. So on the base level, you're thinking, so she's probably going to get hanged. Yeah. While Ron shows you and they're together and they're reunited and forgiveness is happening and they're planning their future. And then suddenly he's gone. Ron. Chaos. Upheaval. Rebellion. And this next scene follows so closely to everything else in Lear wailing over Cordelia. Ichimonji is shocked and broken again. Just as he'd started to build up hope, it was taken away from him. And Ichimonji starts taking his clothes off like Lear does. And he has this whole moment of, why are you alive? How come you're alive and you're alive and you're alive? But Saburo's dead. That's not fair. And then he dies. Oh yeah, it's sad. He dies of death. He dies of death. (laughs) There's nothing else for him to live for. This is the last thing he can't take anymore. You know what I like about this that's different than um, King Lear? What? I like that instead of Edgar, a character who's had no interaction with Lear, crying out, that he's dead and going to help him out. And here you have Kyoami go to see if Ichimonji's okay. And that makes far more sense. It feels so much better than just like, 
oh no, I'm just a good guy, so I'm worried. It's like, this is my dad almost. Yes. Because there is that familial feeling. We get that, stop, it's no use trying to call his spirit. Let him go. He's suffered enough. Just let him be free. Let him go. Which is the same as the vex not his ghost mm-hmm. line. That I mean, it's probably very similar in Japanese to how hard-hitting vex not his ghost sounds. And it's yeah. just a translation thing. But oof. I love Vex Not His Ghost. Saburo's men come up and they're excited and they're like, Saburo, Ichimonji, hey, what's up, guys? We won! It would really suck if both of you were dead. And you've got Kyomi just crying and asking the gods, like, does this make you happy? Is this what you wanted? Tango basically gets the thesis of the movie and he has this long speech where he says that he thinks that the gods are there, but they are sad because men are to blame for their own actions and that they always choose violence over peace. And you just get this huge feeling of chaos and sadness and fear and death. And that's how the ending of King Lear is supposed to make you feel. And like you were saying, it hits so much harder when it's two characters that have a deep connection to Lear. Instead of, what, Edgar and Albany? Yes. Which is weird. It's weird as hell, Shakespeare. Yeah, those characters um, don't really have much to do with Lear. Like, Edgar does, but it's a very short relationship. They've known each other for, like, two days. Yeah, why didn't Kent get the last line? Right. But unlike Lear, Ron continues. Because it still has some stuff to wrap up. Kaede gets Sue's head, because like Marquez called, she dead. Yeah. And Kuragane confronts Kaede, and she said, of course, I was going to do this. I wanted to avenge my family and all of the shit that happened to them. And Kuragane, again, a participant in no theater, very quickly, suddenly, out of nowhere, decapitates her there's like a huge splatter of blood and it is gorgeous and i love it and you don't expect it but you do and it's satisfying so edmund at the end of lear gets a kind of redemptive moment where he just goes oh i hope it's not too late to save cordelia thank you for forgiving me for being such a shitbird edgar and it's out of nowhere it's not deserved all edgar had to do was say You are my brother. I don't think that you're a bastard. I love you. And come on, after years and years of abuse, that's not enough. And I think that what's great is Kayade gets what she wants. She didn't care about power or control or being recognized. She wanted the people who hurt her family to be dead, and they are. Listen, she dies, but she won. She wants... Ron. But like, your final, like, mwahaha victory was decapitating Sue, and like, she didn't do anything. Yeah. That was an Ichimonji thing, and he died. You got him. You got him. Why did you kill Sue? You got your revenge. She's not part of the revenge. Well, I guess you gotta kill the only good thing in this world. The ending is supposed to be bleak. Yeah. And if someone like Sue can survive happily in this world then you don't get that bleakness. You have hope. Yeah. And we get to bury Saburo and Ichimonji. And the movie ends 
just showing Sudamaru exactly where he was afraid to be, completely alone on the ramparts of a castle. But he is a blind man. On a cliff. On a cliff. And he almost falls. And as he is trying to regain his balance, he drops the Buddha scroll that Sue gave him. And we see it fall. And yeah, Buddha is not with him anymore. So did Buddha just save him from falling off the cliff? Buddha didn't save him. He, he... didn't fall off the cliff, though. But Buddha didn't save him. I don't know. Buddha works in mysterious ways, Marquez. Uh, I think I view the film more as a, um, that is a metaphor for all of humanity in that we are all blind men standing on a precipice of a cliff and we fumble and drop our gods. I'd be remiss if we ended this episode without me mentioning a few things about the production of Ron. This was in Kurosawa's later period of film directing, and this film took 10 years of development hell before it went into production, and he had a hard time securing funding for this film because people viewed him as old hat. He was more of a classic epic director, and in the late 70s and early 80s, cinema was moving on. And I think you can make a very clear connection between Kurosawa and Ichimonji. In addition, his wife, Yoko Yoguchi, died during the production of this film, as well as his longtime collaborator and sound mixer, Fumio Yanaguchi. This production was full of death. And also, this is considered, while not his last film, his last masterpiece. This is pretty much his ending opus. So that's Ron. Despite us getting into this deep sadness and mode of conversation, this movie fucking rules. I think that if Shakespeare were to see Ron, in the words of King Lear, he would say, my love should kindle to inflamed respect. This is probably now one of my favorite films of all time. I love a Lear, and this is like... What if somebody took your favorite play and made it into a cinematic masterpiece? You so rarely get that. Yes. It checks all my boxes. And it even has war scenes. And unlike other films we've watched that have war scenes, we are not lost for one moment. We oh, are in it. Yeah. Kurosawa knows what he's doing. It's almost like he's a good director. So, Marquez, what would you rate this film? I would rate Ron 10 different translations out of 10. What about you, Megan? I would rate it way more than 30 soldiers on Ichimonji's side out of two terrible sons. That's pretty are, good. That's pretty good. Well, I think that's going to do it for us here on Avant Bard. We really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed Ron. And until next time, we will see you anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlow. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Avant Bard, 
You can visit us on all social media platforms at Avant Bard Pod.